Let us open our Bibles to Acts chapter 20. This morning we are reading verses 17 through 21. We continue to trace the accomplishments of the cross, the blood of Jesus, as we study this chapter. For we should never read the Bible apart from faith and remembering what Christ has accomplished through his blood. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17 through 21. Now from Miletus, he, Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time for the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. When I initially started uh, studying this section, I was going to cover verses 17 through 27, but then I got stuck in verse 21. So that's all we're going to cover today, verse 21. But before we get there, let me remind you that the central uh, truth uh, to our study through the Acts uh, chapter 20 will be verse 28 of this chapter, which is one of the most doctrinally weighty verses in all of the Bible. It reads as follows, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. As I said last week, everything I'm going to say in chapter 20 is an expanded um, exegesis of verse 28. I don't think we can understand chapter 20 apart from focusing on, chapter, on verse 28. When the Lord Jesus died on the cross by the shedding of his blood, he was accomplishing something. He was accomplishing something. Not a potentiality, but an actuality. The words, it is finished, meant something concrete. Jesus didn't say, it is finished unless. He didn't say, it is finished or only if. Not at all. Jesus did not enter into this world to die on the cross to see if he could accomplish the work given to him by the Father. Rather, Jesus came into this world to fulfill his work, to accomplish his mission. With his blood, Jesus actually... What does verse 28 say? I'm not making this up. He actually obtained something. He actually obtained something. And what did he obtain? You know it. It's not a trick question. He obtained what? The church. And what's the church? A global people for his own possession. As Titus chapter 2, verse 14 says. Now, please think about this with me. If Jesus obtained the church with his blood, that means he also obtained the means by which the church will become his in time and space. 
What I mean is this. Since Jesus obtained the church with his blood, that means Jesus did two things on the cross. He accomplished redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, but he also procured the application of this redemption to sinners in time and space. In other words, how can Acts chapter 20 verse 28 say that Jesus obtained the church with his blood if he didn't also secure the means by which the church actually becomes his. Jesus obtained the church not only theoretically, potentially, but he obtained the church actually, actually obtained it. So then the question is, how do we become partakers, beneficiaries of what Jesus did on that cross over 2,000 years ago. How is the blood of Jesus applied to us in time and space and history? How does Jesus get what he paid for with his blood? Last week, we began to answer that question. First, we learned that nothing but the blood can guarantee the success of Christian missions. Or to put it differently, not a drop of his blood will or can be wasted because his blood actually obtained the people for whom it was shed. Remember, he obtained something. Do you think he's going to lose it? Please say no. Please say no. He obtained it, so his blood will never be wasted. No sinner, listen to this, no sinner for whom that blood was intended will or can ultimately be lost. Why? You know the answer already, verse 28. He obtained. He obtained it. So the, the losing a sinner for whom Christ died is an impossibility. If a sinner for whom Christ died on the cross can ultimately be lost in hell, then what did Jesus obtain? What did Jesus obtain? Let's take Sopater, for example, that is mentioned there in the verses 1 through 6 as one of Paul's companions, just as an example. Did Jesus obtain Sopater with his blood? Did Jesus buy him with his blood? Then it was impossible for Sopater to be lost. As I said last week, missions is the work of gathering for Jesus what's already his, both by promise and by blood. The father had promised the son a people for his own possession. Where do we read that? Psalm chapter 2, verse 8. Ask of me, says the father to the son, and I will make the nations your what? Your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Did the father fulfill his promise to the son? Yeah, Sopater belongs to those nations. Sopater belongs to those people in the ends of the earth. And then what did Jesus say in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? We're connecting dots. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. What did the Father promise the Son in Psalm 1, 2, verse 8? Ask of me and I will make the ends of the earth your possession. So missions is gathering for Jesus what is already his. He already bought it. He obtained it. He purchased it. He's not going to lose it. He's not going to lose it. This is why I believe Arminian theology is so dangerous because it attacks the heart of the love among the Father and the Son and the Spirit. What the Father promised the Son, the Father will give the Son. The Son paid for those people. He will get it. The Spirit will make sure. 
And then with his blood, God incarnate, the son, obtained that people eternal. He paid the price for them. In this sense, then, the book of Acts is primarily the story of how Jesus gets what he paid for. Second, we saw last week that nothing but the blood of Jesus can create true unity among God's people. Our unity was also obtained with Christ's blood. Jesus bought our unity. Remember this, the blood is the one thing we have in common. The same blood is necessary and sufficient to save us no matter your name, your career, your education, your ethnicity, your looks. You can be really handsome. You need the same blood. The same blood. Upon this one blood, we stand together. All our differences are collapsed into this one commonality that we possess in the blood of Jesus. We all need it. We all need the same amount. This morning, I will show you yet one more accomplishment of the blood of Jesus. And here it is. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood, can actualize spiritual conversion. Actualize mean make it real, make it a reality. In Miletus, Paul called for the elders of the church in Ephesus. The, the trip would have taken a few days. But Paul said to his companions, go and get me the elders that are in Ephesus. I need to talk to them. He was eager to speak to the elders of the church in Ephesus because this was his last chance to talk to them. He was not going to see them again. Once the elders arrived in Miletus, Paul shared many things with them, all of which I will cover in the weeks to come. For now, just consider with me what he said in verse 21 to the elders of Ephesus. Paul said this, that he went around, verse 21, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of what? Repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what Paul preached. And he reminded the elders of it. Now, the significance of verse 21 lies in the fact that it is one of the best summaries of what we mean by the word conversion or Christian conversion, to be more precise. The reason, reason is simple. Verse 21 mentions the two elements of conversion, namely repentance and faith. So as Paul engaged in his missionary journeys, this is what we, he called everyone to do, repent and believe. Repentance and faith, which is another way of speaking of conversion. Now, let me quote for, for, from the Heidelberg Catechism. This is how the Heidelberg Catechism, a historic document of the Christian church, how it, it speaks of conversion. It asks the question, of how many parts does the true conversion of man consist? Of how many parts? What is true conversion? Answer, of two parts. Of mortification of the old man of the mortification of the old man, and of the quickening of the new man. So two parts, conversion, the mortification of the old man, and of the quickening of the new man. I take that to mean repentance on the one hand and faith on the other. Now conversion, to repent and to believe in Jesus is clearly and obviously uh, and really a human action. It is humans who must repent, and it is humans who must believe, exercise faith. These are human responses to the gospel. 
those who hear the gospel must repent, and those who hear the gospel must believe. The gospel of Jesus always calls for human response. And the only appropriate response to the message of Jesus dying and rising again is repentance and faith. You must be converted, converted by repenting and by believing. But the question we are exploring this morning is as follows. What does the blood of Jesus have to do with our repentance and faith? As we begin to answer that question, let me take you back to verse 28. It says explicitly that with his blood, Jesus obtained the church. I'm going to mention that many, many times throughout this series uh, through uh, Acts 20. What is verse 28? It is a statement of fact. It is a statement of fact. And once again, I must make this very, very clear. How can Jesus be said to have obtained the church if that doesn't also include the means by which he obtains it? If we take verse 28 for what it actually says, then we must conclude that the actualizing of our conversion in time and space is also secured by the blood of Jesus. Let me make it personal. You repented and you believed in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus obtained the church. Therefore, his death through the shedding of his blood in the past, listen to this, guarantees your conversion in the present. It is a package deal. And if Jesus obtained me, then won't Jesus also guarantee that I receive the benefits of his purchase? I see the need to remind us of this central truth. Ephesians chapter 1 says that God has blessed us with how many spiritual blessings? A few, many, all, with every spiritual blessing. Amen to that. Let me ask you this. Do repentance and faith belong to those spiritual blessings given to us by the Father? Please say yes. And in whom does God bless us with every spiritual blessing? In Christ. And in Christ alone. What does that mean? It means that apart from Christ Jesus and his blood, you wouldn't have any spiritual blessing, including repentance. And faith. Now, let's see why this must be the case. Let us begin with repentance. What is repentance? Here's the Westminster Larger Catechism. I quote, Repentance unto life is a saving grace wrought in the heart of the sinner by the Spirit and Word of God, whereby out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sin, and upon the apprehension of God's mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, he so grieves for and hates his sin as that he turns from them all to God, purposing and endeavoring constantly to walk with him in all the ways of new obedience, end quote. So what is to repent? To repent is to grieve over our sin to hate our sin, and to turn from our sin. Repentance is hatred for sin. Repentance is rightly understood as a change of mind that leads to a change of life. Why a change of mind? 
A change of mind in the sense that the sinner, when he or she repents, he begins to see his own sin as God sees it. To repent then is this, is to agree with God's word that my sin is deserving of death and punishment. When I repent, I'm agreeing with God. I'm agreeing with God that that is what my sin actually deserves, death and punishment. Isaiah chapter 55 verse 7 paints a really good picture of repentance when it says, let the wicked forsake, forsake his way and the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. Repentance has two elements, forsaking on the one hand and returning on the other. To repent is to forsake sin and wickedness while at the same time turning to the Lord. Now, do you realize what the call of repentance assumes? It assumes not human goodness, but what? Human depravity. The call of repentance. When the Bible calls us to repent, what is the assumption? We're not good. We're depraved. Repentance assume, assumes that man must acknowledge that no one is righteous. No, not one. Romans 3.10. And this, my brothers and sisters, in and of itself, strikes right at the heart of human pride. Right at the heart. It is an arrow, the call of repentance. It's an arrow that goes right through the heart of human pride. Repentance assumes that we have all, no exceptions, we have all gone morally and ethically wrong. There's not a good person in this room. Thank you. The call to repent is a call to acknowledge that we are not good, that we have offended our holy creator, and we must turn from our sins that we cannot remain the way we are. The call of repentance is therefore hated by the natural man, for in the call of repentance, he must admit the need for self-denial rather than self-fulfillment. Sigmund Freud was a man who hated the call to repent. He hated it. For Freud... The feeling of guilt was central to a proper understanding of humanity. But he was committed to a materialistic evolutionary paradigm. Therefore, Freud sought to explain guilty feelings in purely scientific terms. Seeking to be consistent with Darwin's evolutionary theory, Freud took great pains to explain guilt as a merely biological phenomenon that needs to be accepted as intrinsic to who we are without any need to do anything about it. Guilt, according to Freud, is not a moral problem, but a biological reality. Guilt, therefore, must be suppressed by simply accepting yourself as you are. For Freud, this was the way to salvation, which in his mind was freedom from guilt. Embrace yourself. 
Just embrace yourself with all your desires, all your passions. Ignore guilt, for it is a biological, natural element of human existence. And if guilt is nothing more than that, then you don't need to repent of anything. Freud's theory of man is precisely what I mean by man's hatred for the call to repentance. Freud hated the obviously and inescapable moral and immaterial or spiritual nature of guilt. Therefore, he created a theory to explain guilt away within a naturalistic, biological, purely evolutionary framework. But nothing can be more devastating to humanity than to know you're guilty and not know what to do about it. Nothing can be more devastating to humanity than to know you're guilty and not know what to do about it. Freud, though dead, his ideas are not. If you see people today not only accepting but embracing all forms of sins, rejoicing in their sins and proud of their sins, then Freud has definitely left a mark. This is the human spirit in rebellion against God. The problem for Freud and for all those who desire to follow in his footsteps is this. Guilt can never truly go away by a mere theory. It will never go away by a mere theory. Guilt is inescapable because God's law is written on our hearts. But being a fallen world, humans are always trying to hide from God as Adam did in the garden right after he disobeyed. Many years ago, John MacArthur wrote a book titled The Vanishing Conscience. I commend it to you. As the title implies, the purpose of the book is to show how the modern world is seeking to do away with any sense of guilt coming from the conscience. We need to silence the conscience. But if you do away with guilt, you do away with sin. And if you do away with sin, you do away with the need to repent. So John MacArthur asks in the book, and I quote, If no one is supposed to feel guilty, how could anyone be a sinner? Modern culture has the answer. Listen to what MacArthur said. People are victims. Victimism has gained so much influence that as far as society is concerned, there is practically no such thing as sin anymore, end quote. May I add that clearly in today's society, the only real sin is to call sin, sin. That's the only real sin. That's the only true crime according to modern sensitivities. But as MacArthur says, this obsession with doing away with guilt and sin is devastating. I quote, To deny personal guilt is to sacrifice the soul for the sake of the ego. Disavowing our personal culpability can never free us from a sense of guilt. On the contrary, those who refuse to acknowledge their sinfulness place themselves in bondage to their own guilt. End quote. Brothers and sisters, part of the reason the world is the way it is today is because there are way too many people who don't know what to do about their guilt. This is confirmed by Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. It says this, 
Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. What does Christianity say? What is the message of Christianity to the world? This is what we say. My sin, not in part. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross. And I, I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. This is the message of Christianity. Christianity is the only worldview, by the way, that can say that. Is the only worldview that can say that. I bear it no more. My sin, my guilt, I bear it no more. Therefore, the call to repentance will never lose its relevancy and its importance. In this regard, we must be very, very clear, my brothers and sisters. Jesus died so that we might no longer be the same. He died, he shed his blood to convert us, to make us anew. The so-called then, the so-called anti, what? Conversion, anti-conversion therapy laws. When referring to conversion as change or repentance from that which is sinful, those things are anti-gospel, they are anti-Christ, they are anti-God, they are anti-truth. Jesus died in order to make us anew, not to leave us where we were. Any law that seeks to keep man in his sins is mostly rooted in Darwinian and Freudian understanding of man. Man needs repentance, for man is a sinner who has offended a holy God and he has broken his holy law. He has gone morally astray. He has done evil in the sight of God. But this elicits, evokes an important question, a very practical question indeed. If sin is so deeply rooted in us, and we are by nature so in love with it, who will want to repent? Who will want to repent? How do we, quote-unquote, sell repentance to the world? How could Paul go around calling people to repent? Repentance is not something sinners naturally want to do, hence the name sinner. Who can or who will Repent. Now, I have hinted at that answer already, but we will dive deeper in just a few moments. Let's consider next the second element of conversion. True conversion is always accompanied by another element, namely faith. That's what Paul preached, repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's talk about faith then. What is faith? Here, once again, is the Westminster Larger Catechism. Justifying faith is a saving grace wrought in the heart of sinners by the Spirit and Word of God, whereby he, the sinner, being convinced of his sin and misery and of the disability in himself and all other creatures to recover him out of his lost condition, not only assents, not only assents to the truth of the promise of the gospel, but receives and rests upon Christ and his righteousness therein held forth for pardon of sin, for pardon of sin, and for the accepting and accounting of his person as righteous in the sight of God for salvation. Faith is an instrument by which the sinner, he receives and applies Christ and his righteousness. 
If repentance is to come to the end of yourself, faith is to look outside of yourself for forgiveness. You see, repentance without faith is worthless. For what would be the point of repudiating your sin and forsaking your sin if you had nowhere to go to obtain righteousness? At the end of the day, we not only need to cast away our sin in repentance, but we also need righteousness to stand before God. And here's where faith comes in. And hence, the need to see spiritual conversion consisting as consisting of both repentance and faith together. Through repentance, though repentance is different from faith, the two shall not be set asunder. Let me put it like this. If repentance is the hand that forsakes sin for forgiveness, then faith is the hand that takes hold of Christ for righteousness. Let me say that again. If repentance is the hand that forsakes sin for forgiveness, then faith is the hand that takes hold of Christ for righteousness. Repentance is to realize that you're naked. Faith is to look to the one who can clothe you. Now, please don't make too sharp a dichotomy between faith and repentance. In fact, I believe that when all the data of the Bible is taken into account, we could say that conversion is the union of these two. We are saved, we are forgiven, we are justified when we come to Christ in repentant faith. Repentant faith. Now, notice in verse 21, the object of this faith. In verse 21, it is a very specific kind of faith. It is faith in the Lord Jesus, the sentiment that says just have faith is dangerously incomplete. The Bible calls for specificity. Nothing but faith in Jesus can save us. There is no ambiguity in the words of Paul in verse 21. The Bible never emphasizes the size of our faith as much as the object of our faith. And there is only one worthy object, Jesus Christ the Lord. Now the question is, what does faith do with Jesus? What does faith do with Jesus? What must we do with Jesus? Well, as you saw in the definition from the Westminster Larger Catechism, faith has three specific qualities. Three specific qualities. First, to have faith is to assent to the promises that Jesus saves us through his death, meaning at its most basic level, faith is to agree with that truth that only Jesus can save me, is to say, yes, I affirm that Christ's blood is enough to grant me forgiveness. Second, to have faith is to receive Christ and his righteousness as your own, as your own. By faith, you say to God, I believe you, God, now see me as if I lived Christ's life and all because he died as if he lived mine. And third, to have faith is to rest upon Christ and his righteousness. In other words, by faith, you know yourself to be at peace with God. Your guilt has been dealt with. Your sin has been atoned for. The wrath of God has been satisfied. Now Jesus called you his friend. In summary, faith then means I assent to the truth that Jesus died for my sins. I receive him and his righteousness as mine, and I rest in the perfection of his person and his work on my behalf. But just as repentance assumes our depravity, faith assumes our insufficiency. 
Repentance says, you are not good. Faith says, but someone else is. His name is Jesus. Repentance is the admission that my greatest problem, listen to this, repentance is the admission that my greatest problem lies within me. Faith is the recognition that the solution to my greatest problem lies outside of me in the one who died for me to take away my sins. So at this point, we are left with the same question I posted to you a few moments ago. As we preach this message to the world, who will listen, who will repent, who will believe? How has this message been spread so far and wide all around the world? To go around preaching repentance and faith seems a bit foolish, doesn't it? It makes us feel like Isaiah 53, where the question is asked, who will believe our message? What is our encouragement for continuing to preach this message? What was Paul's encouragement? Well, it was the assurance he found in the blood of Jesus. Paul's encouragement came from knowing what the blood of Christ had accomplished. In fact, if you look at the answers of both uh, repentance and faith in the Westminster Larger Catechism, once again, if you look at the ones that you have in your notes, you will notice how the Westminster Larger Catechism describes both repentance and faith at the very beginning, at the very beginning of their definition. According to the Westminster Larger Catechism, what do repentance and faith have in common? Both are saving what? Graces, saving grace. Which means both repentance and faith are a gift flowing from the blood of Jesus. Through his death on the cross, Jesus earned the right and the authority to grant conversion to his people. It is all about the blood. Consider with me what the Bible says about repentance. Turn to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, verses 30 and 31. Acts chapter 5, verses 30 and 31. Here Peter explains the relationship between repentance and Jesus. Repentance and Jesus. Listen to the word. Acts 5, beginning verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to do what? To give what? Repentance. To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Repentance is in and of itself a blessing that comes to us from the cross of our Lord Jesus. Repentance is granted to us by God through Jesus Christ. Look now at chapter 11, verse 18. Same book, Acts. Look, verse 11, chapter 11, verse 18. A similar idea is repeated. Speaking of the Gentiles coming to faith in Christ, the Jews fell silent, verse 18. They fell silent. When they saw that the Gentiles had believed in the gospel, just like they had, the Jews, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, 
then to the Gentiles also, God has granted what? Repentance that leads to life. Hence the language of the Westminster Larger Catechism that says repentance is a saving grace. It is a gift from God given to us on the basis of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus obtained the church with his blood, which means he also obtained the gift of repentance for us. We can repent because Jesus purchased us. Concerning faith as a gift from the Lord to us, the Bible has much to say. I will limit myself to one verse. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, the apostle could say these wonderful words. Philippians 1, 29. For it has been granted to you, granted to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Let me read that verse again. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Did you hear that? Your believing in Christ, your faith in Christ is something granted to you for the sake of Christ. See, not, none of this is about us. It is all about Christ. He earned the gift of faith for you, and because he earned it, he bought it with his blood, you believe. No wonder the writer of Hebrews calls Jesus the founder and the perfecter of what? Our faith. Our faith. So what did Jesus obtain for us on the cross? He obtained not partial, not partial, but full redemption, including the gifts of repentance and faith. He's the one who imparts those gifts to those who are his by virtue of election. It's not like Jesus died, did one half of the work, and we do the other half. Now remember what verse 28 says, right? Let's bring it back to verse 28. What did he do? He obtained, he purchased, he accomplished, he finished the work. Jesus did it all. He secured everything for us. Jesus died so that we might repent. Jesus died so that we might believe. Here's a beautiful, well-known summary of it all. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, you know this verse, it says this, for we are our own workmanship. Oh, sorry, sorry about that. For we are God's workmanship. Listen to this word. Created. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in then. And summary statement is this. Christians are not self-made. They are God-made. Christians are God-made in and because of Christ. So what do we take home? What are the practical implications? I'll give you three very brief. First, renew your gratitude. Renew your gratitude. In other words, what I'm saying is this. Don't leave repentance and faith out of the things for which you're grateful. As if you could. Christ gifted these blessings to you and he obtained them with his own blood. So don't be shy and don't be prideful. 
In your prayers to God, feel free to say to God, Lord Jesus, thank you for giving me repentance and faith. Second, renew your service. What do we do? What we do as a church, whatever ministries, whatever outreach, etc., it is all because of the blood of Jesus. And this is why our service and our labor in the Lord is never in vain. It's never in vain. Everything is bound to the cross. Therefore, the fruit of what we do has also been secured by the blood of Christ. Let us persevere in serving the Lord. He bought us so that we might abound in good works. And finally, third, renew your hope. Renew your hope. The blood of Jesus will not be wasted in the least, neither in your life nor in the world. What he did, what he purchased, what he obtained will become fully his. And the intent of the shedding of his blood will have its full fruition in you and in the world. Nothing can or will prevent this. Jesus shed his blood to begin, to sustain, and to finish his woodwork in you. So we look at the cross and we say, amen. He will Certainly do it. We haven't even reached verse 28 yet, but we're getting there. It's going to take us a while, but I hope you are excited. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the full, final, perfect accomplishment of the blood of your Son. This is the only message that can grant true hope. We know that there are many worldviews out there, many religions, many claims but when they are tested, they all fail. There's only one message that can say it is well with our soul. For there is only one who can grant us the peace and the hope that our sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, our sin not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross and we buried no more. And so praise you, Lord. Praise you. We thank you for the finality, the sufficiency, the perfection of the blood. And upon his work we rest. For we know that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In the meantime, we do not lose hope, but we keep on looking to Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.